You are listening to The Mallory Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. Welcome everybody in this evening. I hope everybody, I mean, I know the weather across the country has been horrendous the last few days. I've seen record highs everywhere, breaking, breaking storms. So I hope everybody, well, that's mostly in the United States. I guess I can't say I surveyed the weather everywhere, but I hope everybody's safe and well whenever you're listening to this. But okay, so my guest tonight is Dr. Karen Gadney, the author of 30 Years Behind Bars. Karen, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Jim? Doing pretty good. So, what, what, let's start. Let's start really easy. I'm going to ask you a few softballs here to start with, and then we'll get deeper and deeper into this as we start. What made you? What? Let's start with what made you want to be a doctor first. I would say that I was one of those kids who loved to read, and uh, I grew up sort of isolated, and I had parents who had, let's say, survived Germany and wouldn't let us interact with anyone. And it was really books that uh, I read when I was young, and, and I'm saying like eight or nine years old, and somehow I got hold of a Frank G. Slaughter sort of series. He was a surgeon who wrote about doctors, fictional ones, throughout history, and they always had uh, great romantic adventures and and uh, did all these unique science things and protected against abuses of power. It'd be like the surgeon of the Roman Legion, the buccaneer surgeon. Uh, and even he had written books like Countdown, which was turned into a movie. And somehow, as a young kid, I decided that's what I want. I had no concept of really what a doctor was. Um, in in fact, in third grade, and I can't remember if it was before or after I made the decision, I spent a week in the hospital, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> so maybe it was partly fear that I had to, you know, be sure that I could keep myself healthy so I would never end up in the hospital. But at nine years old, I just know I made the decision, and I told my parents, I'm going to be a doctor. And uh, my my parents were immigrants. They didn't have any money. And they go, that's nice. But at 18, you're on your own. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, so they just, didn't stop me, but they didn't encourage me. Let me put it that way. Side, side note, I don't think anybody likes being in the hospital for any length of time. No, I would think not. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, so, but I guess they're all motivators. <laughs> I was going to say, that's probably the greatest motivator that we, we all share in common, getting out of the hospital. Right. <laughs> That might be the most universal thing. That's actually pretty good. I'm going to have to pawn. Anyways, back to the original point of the show before I get lost in the philosophy of all that. Um, so you decide to go to med school, and then, like, I guess that ends ends with you being in prison, but I'm not saying that right. So tell my listeners the story. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a little in-between phase there, Jim. Yeah, well, for me, I was really fortunate that uh, I was able to get a lot of scholarships and work and uh, survive on little food because I did everything on my own. And one of the greatest gifts was when I was accepted into medical school, I actually uh, applied for the National Health Service Corps Scholarship, which was a full ride to medical school. And in return, you had to sign away your life for four years after your training, after your specialty training as well. And for me, I thought, well, that's great. Oh, my God, I don't have to pay for medical school. I could actually become a doctor. And I never in my mind conceived of things like getting married or do getting kids or anything like that. And I thought, well, where could they stick me for four years? Maybe it'll be an inner city or out there in the rural area. And when my number was up, they said, um, we're sending you to prison. <laughs> That was a bit of a shock for me, because actually, I don't think even when I signed that contract, which was, you know, like seven years before I was sent, I don't even think the Corps knew that prisons were an option. But your audience, I think, should know that the United States in 1976, in a Supreme Court decision called Estelle versus Gamble, 
actually set it up where uh, the individuals who were incarcerated had a constitutional right to access to medical care um, for a serious medical need and that prisons could not be deliberately indifferent. And prior to that, prisons really didn't have, for the most part, doctors. So if you were in in horrible shape, you could have been at the mercy of wardens. You see what I mean? If they don't like you, you die on the inside. And the Supreme Court actually got involved. Most Americans, I don't think, know that history. And so in 76, things started to change, but it takes a while for lawsuits to hit. And when they hit was in the 80s, and that's what spun me into the prison, because Nevada was under lawsuits, and they had to get, uh, they were mandated to get a doctor in their system. And in those days, you couldn't force a doctor to work in a place. And in the 80s, in Nevada, prisons were violent. You know, they had race riots, they had killings, they had people taken hostage. I mean, it was a wild time. And uh, the governor realized, gee, I can't force a doctor to work here. So he petitioned the federal government, and that's how the National Health Corps got involved. And they tossed me in the mix. Well, let's back this up for a second. That's why I you, ended up in prison. <laughs> I was gonna say, you, you mentioned that the the race riots and all the, the violence going on. So you you just got yes. your letter that you're going you're going to prison. How did you? I'm sure the first moments were a fear and shock. But how did you come to accept that? Or did you ever? I mean, obviously, eventually, they could just spend thirty years there. But um, those first few moments, how was that emotional? Yeah, yeah it, you know it it was. It's a little complicated to explain, but imagine I was a resident and a chief resident in Nevada um, uh, in Reno, okay? And when they said, hey, you're going to be sent somewhere, they initially said, uh, we want you to look at Cabrini Green in Chicago. We want to have you look at Appalachia. And I was thinking, oh, boy, where am I going to actually go? And then at the last minute, they called me up and they said, hey, a place just opened up in Nevada and they want you. And I was like, oh, really? Where? (laughs) And they said prison. And I actually went and interviewed in the prison. And uh, it was sort of funny. There were three people they interviewed with the Corps. And it was typical. There was an African-American, a Hispanic doctor, and a blonde female, and the the uh, African American and the Hispanic males said absolutely no. <laughs> so that <laughs> left me. That's how I. That's how it's sort of funny. But in one way, I was glad that I was staying in Nevada versus you know being stuck in Appalachia or Cabrini Green in Chicago in the eighties. That was very dangerous. Um. And I had no idea what a prison would be like. And the medical director who interviewed me, I really thought he was a professional. And I thought, you know, this could be very interesting. Mind you, when I started, about two weeks later, he collapsed his spine from metastatic cancer and was really gone. And here I was, the doctor in a prison, in a state, and no one was above me to tell me anything. No one, and it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot to unpack there because that's where it all really kind of starts to open up into a how do I say this ocean like of things that happen to you. Um, yes, you're, you're. I mean, you're. I, I do recall your 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 boss was off on vacation, and then when he came back, you realized that he was going to be gone sooner than later. And not not having, I mean, because you're just fresh out of school, so you still have all those fun questions in the back of your mind, and plus not knowing anything about the prison system, and you're literally just thrown to the woods. So I can't imagine those first that first month or two, just trying to get your sea legs. Yeah, I I really was um, I was a bit lost because if you're totally new in a prison, and then on and you have no one to ask uh, about anything, and then you realize that the people who control the prison 
um, don't tell you anything, and actually you get a good sense that they don't even want you there. And in my book, I said, hey, the first day, they said, hey, this guy over here is going to show you around, and he was in blue scrubs. No one told me he was an inmate. You know, that sort of thing. I, it was like highly, highly unprofessional. <laughs> highly unprofessional. So I, I, I'm guessing there was different points where you said, eh, this isn't going to work. Yeah, there were times that uh, I was certainly um, felt like I was being attacked and uh, whether I was going to survive. And I knew I had to do four years because actually the way the contract is that you sign is if you sort of leave, you can face imprisonment at $150,000 fine, all these horrible things. So, you know, I was going to hang on for four years no matter what, so I didn't face that type of problem. And uh, in my start of my second year, basically, um, I was taken hostage, and that that really shocked me. Um, and in the hostage event, I uh, went on 10 hours. <clears throat> the inmate who took me hostage was originally on death row for killing a police officer, but because the Supreme Court uh, back in, I think, 72 said it's... Uh, death row was unconstitutional but then they brought it states brought it back but he was someone who uh, was now a life without which means he would never ever leave prison and he was an ex-marine a vietnam vet and i had seen him for some medical problems psychological problems and he became let's say in the medical world he had transference onto me, like looking at me at all the things he wanted in life that he would never get. And he was highly, highly intelligent. And I saw this happening, and doctors have to be very careful about counter-transference. That means giving a patient what they want. What he wanted from me was um, a female who would... Uh, you know, be his basically, and that that was like a, an absolute no. And I thought I made a mistake. I thought that because he was bright and understood the whole concept of countertransference, and I couldn't really give him to anybody else. You know, in the outside world, if some patient gets too attached to you, you can disengage. But if you're the only person there, well, that's a problem. And the other option I had, which I did not take because I had seen how custody reacted to the inmates, was to tell custody, hey, I think this guy is getting a little bit too close. But if I had done that, uh, I had a prior knowledge where I had one mental patient who was, you know, thought I was his ex-wife and was really getting bizarre on me. And I told custody. And you know, they basically beat him up and threw him in a different prison. And I thought, wow, I, I, you know, I have a hard time trusting custody to handle things appropriately. And I made a mistake that I thought I could handle that situation. And it, it didn't happen. And I was taken hostage. And in the, he took me down by force. He raped me. Um, the whole thing went on 10 hours. That's when you really um, feel that you shouldn't have drank coffee in the morning. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, God. And they got me out with a SWAT team from another city. And the way they did it was they sledgehammered a hole through the wall, which was actually a kickout panel, and threw in one of those flashbang concussion grenades. And... All what I know was when that thing went off, it was like the whole room, I actually saw the room sort of expand out, you know, like in earthquakes where you can see things sometimes like glass move, um, the whole thing expanded out, and when it collapsed back in, 
I thought I was having the last thought in my brain. And I was married um, to my husband at that time. And, uh, and I thought, poor Cliff, I never even gave you a baby because I thought it was my last thought. And then um, the SWAT team got in and they blew him away, like probably two feet from me and dragged me out. And I was, well, I was, <laughs> I was just shaking and, and, and they wanted, oh, what I know is people were coming toward me like, are you okay? And I just didn't want anything to do with anybody. You see what I mean? Oh, and yeah. then... <clears throat> And then I was taken to be debriefed by the warden. And in the debriefing, my husband was there. And I didn't, I wasn't emotionally ready to say in any way that what had happened, you know, and that I was raped and all that business. And plus, I, I didn't really trust the prison in those days. In fact, I have... I always wonder how much of how everything went down and also other information I got over the years to put little pieces of the puzzle together. I wondered how much of it was maybe allowing it to happen so they could get rid of me. You know, there's a piece of that that I really wonder about. Or is it just that they were totally incompetent? You know, uh, there are different things, but but I always wondered. And um, and then that happened on an October, Friday the 13th. <laughs> and when I got home, then I had the weekend. And, you know, media wants to get hold of you. And they were, like, near my house. And, oh, my God. So I had to escape with my husband, you know, to go somewhere else. And then on Monday, I'm back at work. And no one from the prison had checked on me at all or just said anything and I go back into the prison and there's still a hole in the wall from where they sledgehammered the hole there's still like blood gushing up through the tiles and um, and no one the custody the administration um, people who are responsible for the security of the prison no one said anything to me and it was really the inmate population who uh, showed me actual compassion. You know, when they interacted with me, they wanted to make sure I was okay. They sent me get well cards. They somehow got them to me through the porters or, or an inmate bringing it in. And inmates are not allowed technically to give you a card, you know, because then custody thinks... I don't know what they think, that it'll be nefarious, not like a get-well card or something like that. And But I got cards from the inmates, and I got a card that I saved to this day uh, that was signed by 43 lifers. All the men who had life sentences were never going to be able to go home signed that card because it was sort of one of their own, and they wanted to make sure that I knew that none of them condoned what he did. And they knew that he also did it like people do suicide by cop, where he wanted to die, but he also was using me as like the pawn on the chessboard or the queen on the chessboard or whatever, you know, to get himself killed. And that they did not condone. They feel like, look, his name was his nickname on the yard was Moth, and they said they wrote "Man Moth, we love you," but if you wanted to die, you should have been a man and done it yourself. You see what I mean? That sort of mentality they had, but they actually helped me heal, and and part of that was actually almost a pivot point for me because I started to think, "Wow, if I can be." in a situation where I can be harmed or that custody may want to get rid of me, what kind of abuses of power can custody have over an inmate's life? And by then, just in that year before, I had seen it is always tricky for people to be in charge of someone else 
and then you don't have technical, let's say, accountability, because the prison is really kept away from the eyes of the world. And uh, when I would stand up and say, this is not acceptable for certain behavior custody did to the inmates who were actually my patients, um, let's just say that did not make me a friend of custody, right? Because if someone says this is not professional, they have many times a different mindset where it's like them as a group against the inmates. And so for me to stand up for an inmate made me not one of their group and therefore an enemy. And, you know, of course, when you're naive and you don't know anything, you're just doing things that make sense to you. Like, hey, this isn't right. The guy's all like chained up on the floor. He can't do anything. And why bring in the attack dog and have the dog bite him in the thigh? It makes no sense, right? I mean, this is what I saw as a doctor. It's like, no, this is wrong. And I would say when I saw things that I felt were wrong. Mind you, they didn't explain things to me. I mean, maybe some of those things were possibly appropriate, but uh, they didn't say, you know, they just considered me a bit of an enemy. So let's 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 re-rack for just a second. First, my, my chat room wants to express how strong and how courageous it is for you to tell this story. Of course, you've read it in the book and told it before, but we just want to extend our thanks for you to share the story with us because it is powerful and moving. Um, I'm going to tell you from my point of view, when I read it in the book, I probably read it four times, which probably didn't help me finish yeah. the book on time because I was sitting there trying to figure it <laughs> each time I took, each time I read it, I, I was putting myself in these different perspectives of why didn't the employees, you know, say anything or, you know, like why, why is that okay for them? And how do you, you know, how do, how would I navigate that? Of course, that's a hard position to put yourself in being the other play, but I think I would say something. I don't know what, but something. And then being one of those prisoners that assigned that card, which just blows my mind that they're, they have their own community, which surprise, I mean, doesn't surprise me because they're all there together in that together, but still does surprise me to a degree just because I never even thought about it, but there was that whole dynamic there. So, but you went back to work. Three days later, we can't gloss over that. I mean, right? Was that just because yeah, of sheer sheer willpower, or was that just the thought process that you need to get through that that period of time, or did you really need to get back on the horse? Or you you know, people have asked me that, uh, and it never occurred to me not to. And I think it was absolutely just the way I was raised and the way my wiring is. And I was raised really by German parents who survived the war, who were tough. And um, it's a little hard thing to say. You know, they looked at, you know, it'd be the type of thing where you're a kid. (laughs) This is, is, I don't know why, but what, what I remember is, even as a little kid, like I was six years old, my sister five, I climbed up a high tree, I fell off of it, I knocked myself unconscious, my sister's like poking me with a stick. We didn't tell my mother. (laughs) (laughs) We just didn't, because one, she would not be happy about it, but my mother overreacted, it seemed, to anything where we would get hurt or in trouble, so we just kept everything from her. And, uh, and I don't know, my sister and I just learned to, uh, like, suck it up and get back on the horse, and it became a, a habit. And the whole concept, I had people say, oh, why didn't you sue? And I'm like, you know, that would never enter my brain to to sue. And it would never enter my brain to, um, I don't know, take time off. Yeah, it just... It, it was just the way I was brought up, and uh, and also I think I was still in such shock <laughs> that I, I just was going through the motions, right? And also, it wasn't like there was another doctor there to take my place. You see what I mean? So yeah. I just went back to work, and I, I mean, I do definitely remember pulling up to the 
you know, parking lot and walking in and feeling all the butterflies in my heart rate, you know, doubling and things like that. I felt that, but um, it, it it just didn't stop me. So that was in year two. So you you get the next two years done. Your year four, right. your your obligation is up. Any thoughts of saying, well, I could go, I got not quote-unquote freedom now, so any thoughts of moving on, or did you decide at some point in those two years to stay? Yeah, I would, I would say that by my fourth year, I started to, let's say, feel responsible for the inmate population, like they were now my patients, my uh like responsibilities and also I started to be able to do things that made me feel like I was really making a difference Um, I started getting involved in creating programs I brought my husband and my husband's African-American I brought my husband into the prison to speak for Martin Luther King Day because the inmates asked me to and he and my husband was a guy who had grown up with an educated elite family in Hyde Park in Chicago, and he was also in the military as a lieutenant and was a platoon leader. And he was someone who, when I told him to come into the prison and speak, he still was he was in the mindset of, well, if they do the crime, they do the time, lock them up. He he didn't have actually empathy, but when he came in and when he gave that talk and then when he saw um, the population inside the prison, because you'd have to go back to those days where my husband and I lived in Carson City, Nevada, which had, I don't know, maybe 30,000 people or whatever in those days. And there was not one black person in the entire town, except really for my husband. That's it. In fact, I would say that like the second week we were here, he was stopped by the police and asked for his parole papers. You see what I mean? It was that type of town. And then in the prison, we had three prisons on the outskirts of the town. And when I would go into the prison, one out of four of the individuals inside the system were African-American. So imagine you have zero in your city and 25% of your population that you're taking care of is African-American. And, and my first thought was like, where'd they all come from? And I didn't, I didn't know it at that time, but they had really shipped them up from Las Vegas, which had not really built the large prisons, so they didn't know what to do with all those men, so they shipped him up north. But my husband experienced the prison from the inside, and they asked him to teach, and he ended up teaching in the prison. And then I had a true ally in the prison who actually was my husband. Now, mind you, he's not a what should I say? He's not a prison employee at all. He works for the community college, but he started to understand why uh, I stayed. And he also realized, he said, wow, these men were thrown away as children. And it changed the whole way he looked at them. And then he understood why I wanted to stay there and make a difference. And and that really helped me. It'd be really bad if I had a husband who was bent out of shape or worried all the time or couldn't understand what I was doing. So I had an ally for the first time, and, and that that made all the difference for me. And that's a big leap, especially since when we were talking about the event that happened, to then still supporting you, still supporting you, and then getting involved and being part of the process to change that. I mean, that's... Yeah, it's it's a big one, but I think the the thing with um, the guy who took me hostage, he was a Marine vet, and actually, I had talked to my husband about this guy, and he actually warned me, 
he told me, he goes, Karen, that guy is a Bush vet. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, he has never come back from the war. He said, be careful. And, uh, but my, my husband was not the type for me to be, you know, go through the hostage thing and then tell me, I told you so. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> well, I thankfully. I mean. <laughs> but, yeah, right. I mean, but he, he was supportive, but more than anything, he understood how war could destroy people. And actually my husband and one of the custody officers who was a, uh, Navy SEAL in Vietnam, they formed the incarcerated veterans chapter, the first incarcerated veterans chapter in the prison's history. And now that chapter is in multiple different prisons in Nevada. But my husband and Harold Brown, a custody officer, started that. Um, And so my husband, uh, you know, he had a different look as well when he started to understand how many vets were behind those prison walls too so let's let's put a pin in this serious conversation for a minute where can people find you and find the book and all that fun stuff because i need to make sure we do that before we because i look at the clock and we're halfway through already and i got a world more questions (laughs) and i know if i don't do this exactly when i'm thinking about it well you know i'm sure you understand (laughs) Yes, yeah. Well, the book is 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, and the easiest place to find it is on Amazon. It's also available on my website, which is discoverdrg.com. And uh, and if you ever, ever go to Carson City, Nevada, uh, the Nevada State Prison is now a historical spot. Now, that's not the one I worked at. I just pinched hit there. It was uh, built in 1862, a territorial prison, ran to 2012. It is a unique place. Uh, thank God it's a, more a museum now. But my book is in their little gift shop, too. I'm actually I, I'm pitching it because I pinch hit as a tour guide intermittently to tell the stories. And it was the first um, prison in the United States that used the gas chamber as well in 1924. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> I was going to say that is definitely. About, yeah. Now yeah. I, I know some of my listeners are going to ask, "Is that place haunted?" Yeah, well, that's what's wild <laughs> is that paranormal people go there to do weird filming and get freaked out, and it is creepy. I'm not the superstitious or ghost type of person, but it. it it does not send off the best vibes, if you know what I mean, because that has held a tremendous amount of pain and uh, I would consider torture over the years because the Supreme Court, you know, got really involved late in the world of the United States penal system. So, you know, guys would be in solitary for incredibly long times in the area it's it was actually like a huge sort of um, quarry and the inmates had to quarry out the stone and the stone really built like Carson City the capital the mint you know these different places downtown but they have one area which they called the hole which is sort of like a cave in the quarry and in the early days when they would have inmates that they just couldn't control, usually because they were paranoid schizophrenic, they would throw them in the hole. And there's a famous case, Eugene Austin, who was one of these large Native American Indians back in the 1920s, where he probably was a paranoid schizophrenic and violent, and they didn't know what to do with him. He was in isolation 33 years in a hole, and in the 60s, they had to do a lobotomy on him because he was so crazy. You know, so there are a lot of really sort of scary stories, if you know what I mean. Definitely scary stories. Okay, so back to the big... Let's go back to the bigger picture, though. So you've been there four years, and you've got, you're starting to turn the corner, but every, every time I turn around, I'm seeing all these different people coming in and trying to change all these processes. Do you ever just have the, I mean, again, here, I'm going to ask this, I hate to ask this question, it seems like I keep asking yeah. this question, even though I know the answer, but there has to be some frustration as you keep going through this, and you, you start 
building and growing things the right direction, and then somebody comes back through and says, no, don't do it that way. Yes, it yeah, it, it was very discouraging for me to, it's sort of like you climb up the ladder and then someone whacks you on the head and you fall down two or three levels, and then you've got to climb back up again. And I, part of it is maybe German stubbornness. <laughs> Uh, part of <laughs> part of it was probably because I knew I knew that the leadership, because wardens and directors, they tended to have a lifespan of two or three years, and then you'd get a new one. So I think I'm also an eternal optimist. <laughs> I was always hoping that the next one would be better, and sometimes they were, and then sometimes they weren't. But. Um, so, so that was a piece. And then at the same time, I noticed that doctors in the community um, were having problems with paying for malpractice, and then hospitals wanted more and more work out of them and less and less patient interaction. And and then insurance companies dictated what they could and couldn't do. And bizarrely, in the prison, I had far more autonomy because since I was the head doctor and on my prison yard, it was about maybe, I don't know, maybe six or seven years into my 30-year career, the uh, regional medical facility for the entire state of Nevada was built on my prison yard, and that was a 120-bed hospital. And so I went from a sort of dinky area to a 120-bed hospital, which was brand new, and thank God at that time I had the one and only female prison warden, a female, Brenda Burns, and she picked the colors. So instead of gray, it was teal and eggplant, which was really beautiful, I must say, <laughs> you know, in terms of the accents of the place. And, and it had skylights, so it was, you know, it was actually new, and it was didn't smell bad and actually had decent equipment. And it was like a, a unique start. And... Uh, and and so that that helped, and also then the entire state of Nevada started shipping me <clears throat> the sickest inmates in the state. And since I'm an internal medicine specialist, and I have the training to figure things out that other doctors don't figure out, uh, like I am the diagnostician of the specialists, I really enjoyed trying to figure out things that nobody else could figure out. So it piqued my intellectual curiosity. Plus, I had special training in my residency, and I did all the chemotherapy for the state, for the inmates, which was very unique. That's like unheard of for a prison doctor to do the chemotherapy on the inside of a prison. But that also, and I was fortunate, I had a chemotherapy nurse who was excellent. And she and I did the cancer care for the inmate population. And so I just had lots of unique opportunities. And then I also got another doctor, which meant um, that I had the ability to like go on vacation, you know, and of course we could never be on vacation at the same time, but uh, that allowed me to disconnect from the prison for a week or so, and uh, I was a great fan of club meds. <laughs> I would go down to club meds in beautiful areas and just unhook from the world, and that helped me. Yeah, I was going to say, I have to imagine it is nice to get away. I'm, I'm, you know, that grind of doing it five days a week for a long time. I mean, because like you said, it took right. you a while to yeah. get that second doctor so you could even actually get out so i mean that for that first yeah, vacation so that had to be <laughs> that first one had to be even yeah, better than yeah. probably the rest of them <laughs> yeah it yeah yeah to be able to take a, a full break was wonderful and um and then we also started when we worked together we had what's known as a four 10-hour shifts 
So then uh, I was able to have three days off in a row, which was great as well, which most doctors never have. And only bad thing for us was <clears throat> we would be on call every other week. So every other week they disrupted my sleep. <laughs> but, <laughs> but still, but still to have three days, you know, a, a break from the prison, even if you're on call, it's, it's, it, it made, uh, it fit in my lifestyle. And I enjoyed the flexibility. I didn't have to fight with insurance companies and, and everything in those days was paper, so I never had to mess with electronic records, you know, all this sort of stuff either. So there were, there's always pros and cons to anything, and I chose to look at what I had that made me feel like I was doing something. And when I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you're in a really dark spot and you happen to be a candle, you actually really show up where, you know, you go into a room that's all lit and you're a candle and everybody's like, well, so what? There's another one. So I, I was a candle in a very dark spot and I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. And you burn it at the end for a long time too. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned being there during the start of the AIDS wave of reality. Talk me through some of that because yes. I'm of the younger person, not really young, but I missed most of that, the early days of all that. So yeah, you did. Right. Yeah, well, so imagine um, when I was a medical student in Cincinnati in 1981, uh, they didn't even have the word AIDS. It was called GRID then. And then uh, they knew that it was a transmissible thing, but they weren't quite sure what it was, and they knew gay men in San Francisco were dying of horrible illnesses and everything. And one of these gay guys from San Francisco was visiting in Cincinnati and then started dying of everything known to mankind, ended up in the hospital I worked at, and in those days, there was so much fear. They put medical students and residents on the front line, like, you go in and do something. <laughs> and uh, I had to draw a special blood work. I had to push it in another special tube. And I injected blood into my hand from him. Okay. Now, in those days, they didn't even have a test for HIV. And my first thought was not that I was going to die. My first thought was like, oh, my God, I hope no one saw that I did this. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I had to live with this thought from 81 until the test came out in 85, whether I had been exposed. <clears throat> and I wasn't. But that gave me, let me say, a very good interest in HIV and everything about HIV. So imagine the test comes out in 85. In the state of Nevada, one of the few states in the entire country, they make the decision, this is the state legislature, and I think it's because they were like homophobic. They decided <clears throat> to test every inmate in the state of Nevada for HIV. That was unheard of, you know, in the United States, absolutely unheard of. And so when I started in 87, they had, they had the numbers, and, but they had no idea what to do with it. You know, this is typical of bureaucracies. They have no, no idea. There was no drugs at that time. They didn't know what to do with them from a medical standpoint. And then here I'm thrown into the mix. And... Uh, I find out that in those days, the entire state of Nevada, we only had about 4,000 plus inmates in the entire state. And out of them that they tested, 120 were positive. But had they told those people? No. Had they done any in-service training for custody officers who were scared out of their minds that they were going to get infected? And all of this uh, was something that I had to deal with. In the United States, there were prisons that made decisions like Alabama where they stuck everybody who had a positive test in a yellow jumpsuit with the word AIDS across their back. 
okay? There were states like Florida who made the decision, well, they did it to themselves, so even when the drugs came out, they didn't do anything. They just, like, locked them up and did absolutely nothing, and they died, and they got hammered with huge lawsuits. But in Nevada, and and really, I would say because I was there and, and I was interested in HIV, and especially as an, an internal medicine specialist, I wanted to understand what was really going on that was destroying their health and their immune system and why they got these weird diseases, cancers. And uh, the first drug company that uh, was, I think it was Bristol-Myers Squibb, that was uh, had AZT come out in the fall of 87, they approached me and said, you know, they were detailing me on the drug. And of course, I wanted to understand about that drug. And then they said, oh, there's going to be a speaker in Reno. You want to go to that dinner? And I, I was kidding when I said, well, how do I become a speaker? And they go, really? <laughs> right. And, and then all of a sudden, I get pulled into the drug company world. And I wanted to actually just know about the drugs because everything was so new then, right? I mean, I wanted to know how they worked and why they worked and, and you know, the drug companies made them. So I ended up being a uh, speaker for uh, the drug companies just in terms of educational and because I had the prison niche and the drug companies knew, they knew without a doubt that prisons were places that would really need the drugs because of IV drug use, right? And, uh, and they also knew that prisons might not give drugs just because guys were locked up. So they wanted someone like me who could talk about it scientifically, but also had the background as a prison doctor to show why it was important to also treat the inmate population. That sort of, and I got pulled in that way. And I uh, developed the first HIV support groups. I gave HIV training to custody officers so they would understand that if a guy spit on them, they, you know, wouldn't charge them with attempted murder. You see what I mean? Which happened in southern states. I mean, there was there were so many wild things that happened in the early days because of fear. And uh, that's what ultimately um, got me the Heroes for Humanity Award, where, I don't know, the state of Nevada decided to, I don't know, do it. And all I would remember was that Richard Bryan, you know, the U.S. Senate signed it, so it was sort of cool, and I got a little trophy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and and also I had I had HIV guys that, uh, you know, lived... Uh, through all of that, where without those drugs, they would have been all gone. Yeah. So th this so. is the worst transition I'm ever going to make, probably. But I, yeah. I want to I want to yeah. jump to today, and I want to talk about holistic yeah. pr prison model because I seen that I seen that I think that reference on your website, and I have okay, I'll be blunt, brutally honest, I have no idea what you're talking about. So enlighten me. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I know. So for me, holistic prison reform, I look at it like a doctor where you need three big things. One is prevention, preventing people from spinning into the criminal justice system. And that can be everything from changing laws that are just ridiculous, uh, changing the way police interact with people, uh, preventing mentally ill and drug addicts and people who do stupid things or bad things treat them a different way so they don't end up in prison, preventing kids at risk. So the prevention's a big piece. The second is if they do enter a prison, then in the prison you want to do everything possible so that when they leave, and the majority, like more than 96%, uh, eventually will leave, even after decades, they'll eventually leave. If you're pragmatic, you want them to leave less of a risk than when they entered. And this is for society. So prisons should not be constructed just on the shame and punishment 
and solitary confinement arena because that just makes miserable or dysfunctional people or mentally ill people worse. And so they have to have an approach that heals them on the inside, which is education and programs and addressing individual needs, not treating them all as one bunch. Then when they leave, they have to support them uh, to reintegrate into society. It's sort of like guys in war where they come back and they need some help with reintegrating because if you are cooped up in a cell for decades and uh, you're told what to do and what to wear and, and constantly uh, stressed out over who's going to mess with you or custody is going to take all your property, and then you just throw them on the street somewhere, uh, they don't do well. And many, it's it's so traumatic for them, they actually look at coming back to prison as more safe than the outside world, and that has to change as well. So holistic is... You treat those components, prevent, heal on the inside, and support them when they leave. And in other countries, they do that far better. The United States is an ungodly outlier. They reincarcerate truly five times more people per capita than the average democratic industrialized country. And I'm very familiar with Germany. If you look at Germany, they incarcerate 10 percent as many people per capita as the United States, 10 percent. And they have 50 percent less violent crimes in their country. And for me, as a, you know, scientifically oriented, I want to know, okay, how, how, what, what are all the different variables that allows them to have a 10 percent prison population and half as much violence in their, in their world? And, you know, those are the types of questions my brain always jumps to. And also, if you look at incarceration in the U.S., in the early 70s, we were sort of like the rest of the world. And it was only from the late 70s till like 2010 where it leaped up and became five times as much. And then historians have all sorts of reasons, everything from Nixon's war on drugs and Reagan and how he dealt with the mentally ill and Clinton's tough on crime measures and militarizing the police. And then and then so much power with prosecutors who um, and all this plead pleading versus juries and people have felony records and. You know, according to the ACLU, 70 million people in the United States have a felony record. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, for a country that's supposedly based on freedom and liberty and pursuit of happiness, it's, it's very hypocritical. And, and, and I'm just looking at it as someone who's, would have never ever thought about anything with prisons because I, I didn't know anybody in a prison. I never knew that anybody went to a jail. I mean, I was really isolated. And to be thrown in and be in that proximity to everything for 30 years just gave me a whole different take. And when I retired from the prison after 30 years, I mean, I could have done different things. In fact, I was quite confused when I left. I didn't know how much I wanted to go down the medical arena or the prison reform arena. And actually the prison reform arena won out. I did get another degree in medicine though, in anti-aging and regenerative medicine, because I wasn't quite sure, you know, I have, I've always had a foot in both worlds, but if I want to do the greatest healing for, for my little spot in life, it would be in the prison world. There's a lot of people in the medical world. There are not many doctors in the prison world who want to reform the system. And that's true of the medical system. Prevention, prevention's the thing, and reform. There's a, there's a lot of yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things we could just cut it and paste the same word in there, and it'd be very true. Which is, blows right. my mind. Right. And that's why I yeah, and that's why I I mean I look at both I look at both models. And the United States is 
is oriented i mean they're driven by they're driven by profit and individualism and this uh history of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and it um if as a society we don't want to tear each other apart and 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 spend inordinate amount of money and getting very poor returns we have to rethink what we're doing for sure and we I, have to you know, have to have more on prevention that's just the way it is because I, I did the fuzzy math you know, somebody out there could probably do the actual math and correct me and they probably will because that's how all these things work but I came up to about one in five based off the 70 million number that's yeah. That's horrible. Yeah, with a felony record, right. And, you know, it doesn't take much to get a felony record. And a lot of that is related to things like uh, the bail system in the United States, where someone goes into, let's say they get picked up for a possession of some marijuana or drug, or they did something minor and they get thrown in jail. And now they have to have bail, but they they don't they don't have the money for bail, and then they plead like, okay, I'll plead what you say. I have to plead so I can get out of jail and go back and help my family. And they don't realize that then they have because they pled, they have a felony stamp on them. And then once they have that felony stamp, then they're like a tar baby if they get in trouble again. You know, oh, no, it's the, your second time, and they then it keeps ratcheting up. Plus, if you have a, a felony, depending on the state you're in, you can be in the predicament. Oh, you know, you know, I know you're starving, but you know, you're got a felony stamp, so you can't get food stamps. Oh, you can't get help with housing. Oh, you know, you were going to college, but you know that scholarship because. You have now that felony conviction. You don't get that aid, and it goes on and on and on. And uh, things like that are just setting people up for not being able to succeed. Yeah, that's just remarkable. So we've got about a minute and a half left. Wow. I told you. I'm glad I got that book promo in because I told you we're going to just get to that point. I went, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yes, where the book you can get it on the website discoverdrg.com or Amazon. <laughs> and if you're if you get to um, what was that Carson City, Nevada, you can go take the tour of the prison, which I suggest everybody yeah. does because that just sounds amazing, but not amazing. Figure that one out, right? People right. out there, <laughs> you have to. Yeah, you have to pull up the website because it's not open every day. You know, it's special days, and right now. Um, it's one of those things where they're just revving up like they're doing it like every second Saturday and then they do it a couple of days over holidays, you know, so people actually have to like book a tour. So it's, but it is, it is definitely, uh, if you go to Carson city for whatever reason or go up to Lake Tahoe, cause it's only 40 minutes away, <clears throat> it's a unique stop. Well, Karen, I want to thank you for, uh, A, writing the book, and B, the, the, the career that you had, and C, just opening my eyes to a whole can of worms that I haven't seen before. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book. I, I really wanted the outside world to sort of see it through a different set of eyes, you know, eyes that are trained to diagnose complex problems and heal, um, and not from technically the two opposing forces in prisons where it's the inmate story or the you know custody story those stories are important but they're not oriented to diagnose and heal thank you, you for listening I mean? to this episode of the Mount Report stay tuned for well, Karen have a good evening talk to you soon okay thank you please subscribe so that you can join us again and if you appreciate the show leave us some stars or a review for more notes from this show or other great shows check out Mallard.com A reminder, the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guests and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of duckpondshop.com where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout, duckpondshop.com. Until next week, stay safe and keep whacking.
You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.